This is a good book, Mr. Alvarado. Which circle of hell would you be in? Seventh, the outer one. Those who commit violence against others. Souls plunge into a river of boiling blood. The following podcast is a Carolina Boys production. Welcome back, everyone, to Crime and Entertainment. I'm your host, Hollywood Wade. Now, this is our first official 2023 episode. A lot of the ones that just got dropped this week were back from last week. So we kicked off 2023 with a fucking bang here with Robert Lasarda. Before we get into him real quick, folks, one of our first official sponsors of Crime and Entertainment, Mad vikingbeard.com you see on the youtubes hollywood's got an immaculate beard if you want your beard to look like old hollywood's head on over to madviking.com promo code slash hollywood you'll get a little discount on there so shout out to madvikingbeard.com again forward slash hollywood get you a little discount now today as i said we have robert lasarda i've been seeing this guy on the movie screen since forever he made his debut with richard pryor in the movie Moving, he's worked with Steven Seagal, Hard to Kill, Out for Justice. Uh, I think the first movie I ever seen him in was Drop Zone with uh, Wesley Snipes and Gary Busey. I think Yancey Butler was in there as well. I mean, Death Race, Human Centipede, CSI Miami, uh, Nip Tuck. I mean, just about any TV show you can think of. Over 200 films to this man's credit. Also, uh, past guests we had on the show Ciro DiPaggio, he's got a spot in his movie, The Mob King. So all over the place is Robert Lasarda. Even lately, one of his bigger movies here in the last uh, little bit, he played in The Mule with Clint Eastwood. He was one of the guys that was facilitating the drug runs when Clint Eastwood would pull into the garage. So I was super stoked to have him on the show. It was an excellent conversation. I appreciate everyone listening on the audio, but I'm telling you the video on the YouTube, I was able to insert clips and stills from each movie. Fabulous. Took a lot of work, but I really, really took pride in this interview. I thought it was fantastic. Robert was a true gentleman. He spoke from the heart and it was one of the best interviews I think I've ever done. Shout out to Robert for coming on Crime Entertainment. I'm going to let you guys get into it right now. This is Robert Lasarda on Crime and Entertainment. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Crime and Entertainment. I have here a very special guest. This man has been in countless films, countless TV shows, worked with some of the greats in the industry like Wesley Snipes, Steven Seagal, Burt Reynolds, Tom Sizemore, Clint Eastwood. I mean, if I guarantee you somebody out there has seen a movie or a TV show that this man has been in. He's been hitting the action scene hard for over 30 years. Please welcome to the show, Robert Lasada. Robert, how are you, my friend? I'm well, brother. I'm well. Thank you for having me, Chip. I appreciate it. Hey, man, it's it's an honor to have you because I've seen you in so many movies, especially coming up when I was a kid. You know, we'll get into some of the ones that you were in as some of my personal favorites. But obviously, when I was coming up, you know, some of the action movies with Steven Seagal were really big, like Hard to Kill and Out for Justice. And then the first movie... That I could, when I started getting old enough to put faces to names, 
and paying attention of who people were was drop zone. And that was mm-hmm. one you did with uh, Gary Busey and, and yeah. Wesley Snipes. And I, for whatever reason, I know that it might not have been the biggest at the box office, but as a kid, I don't know if it was just the fact that people were jumping out of planes, but I loved that movie as a kid. I don't know why. It was, it was fun to watch for me. Yeah, we had a good time making it, man, too, down in Miami. I bet South you did. Beach, Key West, Key Largo. I mean, just pick a spot. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the, you know, the choice, uh, choice locations, man. We were there. Yeah, I bet. Well, that's what I want to kind of do today is, is go through some of your films. Because like I said, you have a lot. We'll touch on a few of them here. But, you know, since it's your first time on the show, uh, we'll kind of start with, you know, the, the original questions. You grew up in Brooklyn, correct? That's right. Okay. Yes, and, sir. And I mean, how was Brooklyn? Have you been back? Because you're a California now. Do you go back to, to New York very often? No, I don't. No. I was about to say, compare Brooklyn to the 1970s to, to now. <laughs> but if you don't go back, I guess that's going to be hard to do. <laughs> well, you know what? I'll tell you what. Since you brought that up, I'll be brief. I spoke to a friend of mine, uh, someone I went to high school with in New York in the 70s. And she was telling me that, uh, unfortunately, because of uh, what's been going on in the world, in the country, you know, been a little uh, turbulence out there. Yeah. Um, she said, Rob, check it out. She said, uh, Remember how it was in the seventies in New York? How how I was this incredible, like this interesting, this very dynamic mixture of art, um, character, and violence. I said, yeah. And uh, now it's like that, but take the art out of it and just focus on the violence and uh, and the other elements that are a bit nefarious and not so um, not so celebrated. Yeah. So it's it, you said it's worse. Uh, than I what I remember in the seventies because you know growing up in there and going on the trains there were mm-hmm. fights on the trains there were no cameras and it was a kind of it's always been a kind of in your face city right but she told me she doesn't even want to leave the house right now man because she's afraid for her life yeah. yeah I've actually had to visit twice this year to do some work with the podcast with some some guys up there I've done some filming with. And my mom is just like, she's, she, I don't know if she's ever been out of South Carolina to be quite honest. That's where I met, but yeah. she's like, Oh, you got to be careful. You got to be careful. And I'm like, I know I got to be careful, but I'm like you, man, I, those subways, if it's after like eight or nine o'clock, brother, I'm Ubering or lifting. I mean, it's better to be safe than sorry. I don't have to prove nothing to nobody. And I mean, they just push. Sometimes they ain't even robbing you down there. They just pushing you right off the damn platform just for the hell of it to see which way you fall. I mean, it's, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. That's the sad truth of it. Yeah. So you were coming up. You actually credit an English teacher for pushing you to acting. Is that correct? That is correct. So how did that? What was what was the dynamic, and how did she, you know, get you to push towards acting? She taught drama as an elective. Okay. Uh, in conjunction with her English class, she she pointed out to me that there was a school called the High School for Performing Arts. And that based on what she observed in her class, that I was a candidate to audition for that school. Okay. And so I got busy studying. I pre- uh, prepared uh, two contemporary monologues, which was what the requirement was. The numbers were 2,000 applicants per year, and they picked 70. Wow. And you were one of the 70. Yeah, but I was nervous. <laughs> I was nervous. I was nervous, man. But I mean, like, did, I did, before I you... I waiting to go in there, man. I felt like I was going into a room with... Uh, to meet a firing squad, man, because, you know, you, see, you, you, you walk into a room, and there's these elderly people with these very uh, 
sophisticated and very knowing looks on their face. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you, you, <laughs> you feel like they're watching your every move and they probably were and are, and, uh, you got to disappear into character completely and forget about all that. Make it just poof, disappear right. and just go there, man. And transport yourself into the material, into the play, to the script, whatever it is you're reading, mm-hmm. you have to incarnate, become that. And then, uh, you know, it's like going to sleep, having a good dream or a bad dream, depending on how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's an interesting dynamic, the way you put that, like incorporate yourself into the character, because there's some actors and, and be it phenomenal actors. But for one, I'll, I'll use as an example, Kevin Bacon. He doesn't, to me, he, he is Kevin Bacon in every role he is like, that's just, he doesn't really change very much. He still is a a great actor, but he acts it the same, but then there's other guys that change up the dynamic, be it the way they talk or their dialect, or, you know, if it's more of a villainous character, they'll kind of have a, a different tone to them. Did you find that easy to do? Because you've done that quite a bit throughout your career because you played, everywhere from drama to thriller to horror to, you know, everywhere in between. Did you find that easy to be able to put yourself into different character modes? Was there a hard switch or did you find that pretty easy? Well, I graduated through several phases of that. Okay. When I was younger, I carried a lot of rage, like a lot of young men do a lot of anger. Mm -hmm. So, um, conjuring, uh, characters that were living in that, Psychic dynamic was not that hard for me because I was already there. Right. Um, it's just about shifting the gears, whether they want me to move fast or slow, speak with an accent or whatever. Um, someone said to me, I never believed it at the time, that said, Robert, when you get older and you evolve a bit, you start to evolve, become a little more sensitive, and become more in touch with your feelings. It's going to feel more like a stretch for you to play characters that are a bit tortured, aggressive, and not doing uh, productive things. And I never believed it until I found myself later on in life feeling like it was a stretch for me to um, bring to life some of these characters, man, that were clearly uh, maladjusted type people in a circumstance, whether they were in charge of something or not, running things or being run by something, running towards something, death, or running toward a person to harm, it felt when we were done that my mind and my heart needed to go through a period of uh, uh, reformation, man. I don't want to to make it sound too religious, but I always felt like I had to go see a a priest or a rabbi to get an exorcism, man, because it would start to permeate. And I didn't like how it made me feel, man. I felt like I needed to take a shower and I couldn't wash it off at some time. So to answer your question, um, People would meet me in the street sometimes. They start talking. They go, man, they look at me funny like you're nothing like what I imagine you. And so one of my friends who was a therapist who used to talk to me quite a bit because I was in therapy for a while. I think any actor who goes deep enough requires a therapist in their little bag of tricks. And he used to say, it's like a possession, Rob. When I watch you on screen, it's not the person I treat or the person I know. It's a possession. And I'd watch some of my stuff and I'd go, oh, that's what we did. That's what I did. <laughs> but that's that. Oh, that's oh, that's me. Is it? Because <laughs> my behavioral patterns and my tendencies in day to day life are not what I'm witnessing. So yeah, I'm creating something that my acting teacher enforced and was very deliberate about. He said, "Do not create a self portrait. 
And so it all depends on who you talk to, Chip. Some people found me to be very uh, poetic, sensitive, and, and really soft on the inside. Others found me to be a bit uh, eccentric, weird, and crazy. So it all depends on who you talk to. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I guess. In terms of my, in terms of my, my, who, I, I, who Robert Lasardo is, and then watching the, the paradigm shift into this characterization, they go, whoa, that's not the Robert I know. And others would say, oh, get to know him a little bit better. Right. <laughs> you know, it all depends. Well, and it's subjective, man. And you mentioned, you know, kind of a possession there. You, I think I've heard you say in, in past interviews, because I've done a lot of research on you this weekend and prep for this the exorcist that you've seen at a young age made quite an impression on you. Oh, I thought it was going to be the end of me. Chip. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I, I don't, I don't think I slept well for about a year. Yeah. You want to know, and, and not, this is like, this is a hit to me because I consider myself to be a pretty big movie buff. Like I've watched a lot of films, my DVD collection is, is ungodly. We're talking probably around 7,000 plus the only reason I'm I stopped. A I'm, a, I'm a fan. You're a film historian. Yes. God bless you, my son. God bless <laughs> you. I love it. Yeah. The only reason I really stopped is because everything kept going digital. And so it's just easier to have it where you can just click a button instead of having to dig it out your wall. But they got me too. They got me too. Yeah. yeah. I never, I thought I'd never, I'm never going to succumb to this. And I did. Yeah. They got me. <laughs> And make it so easy. But I only recently watched Exorcist start to finish about a year ago. And even now, like I'd always heard, you know, I would go, I love horror movies and you know, that's always usually the number one horror movie is the exorcist. But every time I started to watch it, it was like, it was a slow burn at start, but then obviously it picks up. So I think that slow burn was just a little hard for me to get through. But once I just made my mind up, I was like, all right, I'm gonna sit down and watch this all the way through. And even then, like now all these years later, that thing still is creepy. I mean, when she's like, grabbing that crucifix and you know doing what she was doing with it and saying your mother sucks cocks in hell and i was just like my god i can see where the outcry of just people i i, I can see where people would leave the theaters on that i mean it is because it's it's towing the line of not just horror but like stuff that can actually or has been known to possibly happen i'll put it like that it's not like it's a a ghost or something like that that's un unrealistic that stuff is has happened before william freaking uh, william 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 Friedkin, the director of the exorcist did yeah. something i think genius in the beginning of that film he started the film in black frame and then you heard this islamic prayer you know uh, god is great in uh you know the islamic um prayer and uh yeah and so and then all of a sudden the red lettering appeared before the screen and you heard this man, you know, uh, this guttural chant in Arabic. And I think for American audiences, you know, because you got to remember, it was a different social climate back in those days. And also United States social political dynamic psych, the collective psyche was a bit different in terms, I think, of religious fundamentalism. And so I think to witness, I wouldn't say an attack but in a challenge on the faith and use the, this idea of the devil at war with the innocence or to the raping of innocence and then integrate that in the very beginning of the film with the ruins in Iraq where the priest, Father Marin, is doing a dig, an archaeological dig, and he comes across these ruins and he finds the head of the Pazuzu 
and he has this look of dread and mortal terror on his face. You, you know, and the the uh, man that's working with him on the dig asks him, not of the same period, Father? And he's kind of, you know, dug up something, I think, which is symbolic of what's to come. Mm-hmm. He's going to basically do battle with the with the idea of the Pazuzu, the demon that's going to possess the girl later in the film. So to me, just the intro alone was, I think, lent itself to tremendous ingenuity by, because I have friends of mine who are Muslim, and they did not particularly like the fact that that prayer, that chant, uh, God is great, was being layered over the idea of something ominous. Right. You know, and that we lived in a time back in the 70s where, you know, there was a, you know, and there continues to be, unfortunately, a divide amongst faith and stuff like that. And I right. think she was like, I don't understand why they're using this prayer and letting it run tandem with the idea of evil manifesting in the Middle East. And this man, a uh, Caucasian man, is digging up something in that land. And the idea that he's marrying it to a place that's supposed to be a holy place, and yet digging up, if you dig deep enough, you're going to find the Babylonian deity called the Pazuzu in the ground. And, the, you know, and it's almost like you're knocking on the devil's door and don't knock too much because the door's going to open and the Pazuzu's going to come out next thing you know. Or, you know, this idea that the priest, Father Marin, was just simply able psychically to recognize that a war was coming. Right. And, uh, and he was going to be, a, you know, you know the 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 commander in that army to wage war against you know the, uh, the ultimate enemy I guess in terms of the Christian Catholic faith. Now you act- Satan, the devil. You actually have that tattooed on you, right? That Pazuzu. Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So definitely a, an impact made. And when I was I was looking into that, what you had said about the uh, what'd you say, a Babylonian? What what was that last part of it? Babylonian deity? The, uh, the the Pazuzu, you know. Yeah, the statue in the beginning, because basically what he does in the beginning of the movie, the Father Marin walks up to a mountaintop, and he's looking around, and William Freakin was really clever in the way he used symbolism. He had a dog, two dogs fighting. Yeah. One was black, one was white. And the priest heard this growling sound, and he looked down, he saw the two dogs fighting, and another dog, a third dog, just walked, ran past, because that dog was neutral, did not want to be involved in, in this idea of conflict. Then he looked over and saw a man watching him, an Arabic man, staring at him, wondering why he was there. And then he looked up and he saw the Pazuzu statue. Of, you know, he looked up at it and it was kind of glaring down at him. And the camera pans down the body, the wings, the hand up, down to the lower part of the body, the midriff, and where the genitals should be as a serpent. And then he kept cutting back and forth for the dogs fighting, him staring at the Pazuzu. And then he did this wide two shot. Of Father Marin on one side, the Pazuzu on the other, and he basically lays out these two are going to, you know, you can see in the symbolism that these two are going to face off and below in, in the uh, the matrix or the world below them. This is the spiritual world above on the mountaintop, right? right? Below is the world of flesh and blood and being because they battle, we battle not with just flesh and blood, but with principalities and all that. Mm-hmm. So below is the conflict of the world. So in the f- first few frames of the movie, William Freakin geniusly sets the stage for this spiritual conflict. If you pay attention to the archetypes, yeah. what the bazooka means, what he represents in the faith and these dogs fighting one another and the growling sound, the sound, this guttural like sound of uh, ripping and tearing and, uh, and beast bestial nature of mankind at war with itself down below. 
And that's that's one reason why I was looking forward to doing this interview because there's not too many people they're going to grasp all the aspects of what he did. They see a scene that's just prepping them for the movie and they don't grasp all that. And, and I'm one of those people that I do look deeper, maybe sometimes too deep, or maybe I might even see things that aren't there. I, I take my own symbolism to certain things, but you know, I, that's one thing that's always fascinated me about movies is because you don't always know every single thing. Some things the directors leave up for each person for their own interpretation and that's that's one thing that's cool about movies that sometimes it, it might even be an inside joke that they put something in there for them that they know that that nobody else has a clue for. I mean, Quentin Tarantino's been synonymous for doing little things like that, you know, throughout all of his movies with things that just kind of either carry over or maybe it even be a last name or the the big Kahuna stuff. I mean, I lo- I love all those little nuances that the maybe not so average fan will pick up on. Stanley Kubrick, I think, was the grandfather of that, and probably a lot of uh, film directors like the one you mentioned probably follow suit with yeah. respect to Stanley Kubrick because he would leave Easter eggs throughout yeah. his, uh, you know, his his movies for you to kind of read into or you know project onto. You know, William Friedkin also said, you know, whatever you bring to The Exorcist in terms of your belief system, et cetera, is what you take away from it. Right. Well, speaking of dogs. Um, you actually spent a little time in the Navy and two out of your four years, I think it was, you actually spent was training attack dogs. Yeah. I, uh, I was, uh, I guess, yeah, I guess I was just to put it simply, I was a police officer. I was a cop and, uh, I was sent to Lackland air force base for certification with a dog. His name was King. They tattooed a serial number. I think C1, C184. And uh, they sent King and I from Alaska, my duty base. I was stationed in the Aleutian Islands the first couple of years, and uh, they wanted to know if uh, we'd want to volunteer to be part of this canine unit. And I volunteered, and they selected me, and they flew me down there. I went through a seven-week certification course in uh, Lackland down there in San Antonio. Got certified with the dogs, flew me back, and then uh, next thing I know, I'm on a listening post in the middle of this Bering Sea near Siberia, and we're doing, uh, you know, special ops with the dogs and you know, playing war games with the UDT SEALs coming up there. Because, you know, back during that, during those days, the, the thinking was if the Russians would invade, they'd come through the Aleutians. So there was an right. air base up there where I was at. And they had all these planes and stuff and uh, and nuclear weapons and uh, and marine compound up there. And uh, we had the dogs up there and everything. And we do everything from checking the luggage for drugs to arresting people and or doing basic perimeter watches. Wow. Stuff like that. What were the, the dogs, uh, German Shepherds? He was, my dog was half Shepherd and half uh, Doberman. He's a beautiful dog. Oh, wow. Yeah, half Doberman. Yeah, beautiful dog. Now, were you an animal lover before that? Did you get along with dogs or? Yeah, I did. I actually did. I, I liked animals. And, you know, I, I had a great affection for this dog. Him and I were really, you know, we, you know, one of those things, they throw you in the cage with the animal and, you, you know, learn quickly to become friends or else. I mean, I was yeah. supportive of the luxury of getting to know the dog prior to going to school. A lot of the other guys in class, they threw him in the cage with these dogs that were a bit ornery mm. and ready to bite you. And they, and the thing was, is the, the instructors would basically explain to all, all of us in class to just learn not to show fear to the dog because the dog can smell fear and just bite you. Uh, so I was already had a relationship going on with the dog. When I first met the dog though, I had to kind of win him over. So whether I like dogs or not, I had to learn quickly to, 
become involved in that relationship for the sheer uh, sake of my duty. Right. Okay. So when you get out of the Navy, was it kind of focusing or focusing on your acting career at that point? Was it kind of hammered down in that direction or what was your, what was your outlook there? I'm not sure the creative aspect of self ever left me. Yeah. I was making phone calls from up there, way up there down to the lower 48 to New York talking to a good friend of mine who's been a, a, like a surrogate father to me, Anthony Apeson, who was my acting teacher at the high school performing arts and went on to train me even after the Navy. And I was calling him while I was in the Navy because uh, I saw some things and went through some changes, man. I just needed somebody to talk to. Mm-hmm. And he always reminded me of what we experienced together in school, on stage, performing. He took me back to a very innocent place in my mind, in my heart, and in my creativity that I was felt that was drifting away from me or I had pushed it away because of the identity crisis that a lot of men battle with. And what am I going to do? Who am I? I didn't leave performing arts going, yeah, I'm going to run off to Hollywood, become a movie star. I was too busy trying not to go crazy and, and trying to stay out of trouble. So I knew going into the military would straighten my butt out. And it did. But I also felt as time went on, there was this emptiness that was inside me getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I needed to fill it with something or I had lost something like a lost love. And I was trying like Dante in the inferno, trying to climb up out of the hole up to the, you know, purgatory and then up to the paradise of truth, which was my calling, which I had ignored or I did not understand. And he was like Obi-Wan Kenobi. He explained to me without pushing it, without trying to sell me anything that there was something going on with me that I wasn't even aware of. But when I went on stage, it was clear to people observing me that there was something I could do and was quite capable of. Wow. Now your first role was, was that a China girl? Was that your first one? You did do your homework, didn't you? <laughs> you did <laughs> I did. Homework. And that is correct. Well that is- done by Abel hey, Ferrar. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> And Abel Farrar done that, which you would go on to work with wow. him again later on with, yep. you know, films like he did King of New York and I think Bad Lieutenant. Um, yes, so and that's that's a pretty cool thing that I see, too. A lot of times, like when when people first come on and you land with a director, I'm assuming if they like you and they get along with you and you have a rapport, lots of times you will get repeat, I guess, business or, you know, a repeat chance at, at working with them. Because, like I said, you worked with him on that, and then you were in King of New York with Christopher Walken, correct? That is correct, yeah. I think it serves on both sides because, you know, uh, you know, finally having to sit in this seat, the director's seat, you want to work with people that you know who can deliver. Right. Casting can be, uh, is tedious. And, yeah. Um, can be, you know, just, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a headache all in itself because you want to make sure you're hiring the right people. And, uh, you know, you want to make sure also if, you, if the project's worth, worth anything in terms of what you're creating, that the people uh, have an affection for it are truly committed to it. Once a director recognizes that they're working with actors who not only do the work, but are committed 110% on all levels, you know, they're, they're, they find some element of it, personalize it. Uh, it's, it, it, the ones that are truly de- truly artistic directors, not just technical directors, the ones who love film, the way you love movies, the way I love movies. I think they appreciate any artist, male or female that um, takes it to that level. And they want to work with them again. If there's a role that they feel that they can pull off, 
Why not go to someone you know who can deliver rather than haggle around with potential possibility, wondering, oh, man, I hope they can, when push comes to shove, when we go to combat, they can really, you know, stand up in the line of fire because there's a big difference between simulation, auditioning, mm-hmm. and, act, and then doing it in front of the camera. People don't realize that. There are people that do real good with testing, and then you put them out in the field, man, and they ain't worth shit. So yeah. I think it's kind sort of like – this idea that uh, some of us function much better under fire than we do in simulation. I'm one of those. I function real well under fire. You put me in simulation, I'm just like, oh, man, you know, I'm not um, – it's just, you know, some people, they're real good at, at that. And I think directors want to make sure. That's why they have you come back several times. You get a call back mm-hmm. after your audition. You get another call back. They want to make sure from the point of view of casting, the producers, directors, before they're willing to spend money on this person, that they can repeat – more or less the same disposition of character and authenticated with such conviction that they go, whoa, he made a, he or she made a different choice this time. And it's just as effective. So it wasn't just a fluke. They mm-hmm. didn't just get lucky that day. They can keep doing it because, you know, the movie takes how, how long to make it. Right. So it's not one scene. If you're going to do multiple scenes throughout the, the feature, they want to know that you can stand, you know, have the endurance to manifest that uh, particular character they've written for you. Right. And I think that, and that speaks to what you said when, when you develop that relationship and you know, people that will and can deliver, I think that's a lot of when you look through great directors like Martin Scorsese, for instance, you know, he's worked countless times with Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro together and movies like Goodfellas and Casino. And then lately, uh, the Irishman that was a big release here a couple of years ago, uh, Netflix exclusive he knows what he's going to get out of those guys. Now at that point in time, as great as Al Pacino's career has been, and as great Marty's, uh, Marty Scorsese's careers have been, they had never worked together until the Irishman. So even though you have two great people that don't always mean that they're going to mix well with ideas and that it's going to come together on film. Um, did you see the Irishman? Yes, I did. What did you think of it? From I an enjoyed it. I did too. I but now yeah, I, I went into people, that. I don't, I, don't listen, I don't pay attention to critics, none of that crap, but I've heard some people comment about it and say, yeah, it was kind of long. And I said, I didn't notice the time. I well, was too involved in it to notice the time. Exactly. And I think people may have, cause I'm a big gangster movie fan. I love the gangster movies, but I think that was what hindered it a little bit because I think people went into that movie expecting like a Goodfellas two or somewhat, you know what I'm saying? More of a gangster element. And it was, to me, it was more of a political film. And I'm like you, I didn't even notice the time. I mean, after it was over, you know, I could say, yeah, God, I started this 17 hours ago. But as the film went on, not one point that I ever look at my watch or say, all right, I'm going to finish this later. I mean, it was just it grabbed you all the way through and it kept you there. And to me, that's the mark of a good film, because when you get to those hour long marks or, or three hour long mark movies, you have to be able to keep an ass in a seat if it's going to be successful. Agreed. Yeah. It runs the opposite end of the duality. You ever watch a film and go, man, I hope this movie, I, I don't want this movie to end. Yeah. Because you get into it, like, and then it ends like, oh, man. Yeah. You got to figure yeah, out that sweet point. spot. <laughs> yeah, man. So to me, best of both worlds is to have something that goes long enough where you feel like you ate a hearty meal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, know, you don't leave the table going, oh, man, I wish I, I would like another bite of that. Yeah. Now, just a little bit more. You know? <laughs> Now, a little bit later, you land a movie with Richard Pryor moving. Right. How did that feel to get that? I mean, because at that time, Richard Pryor was was big. 
I mean, he was on fire. Well, I'm assuming that that was a little bit before my time, but I've got to think at that time he was a big name in Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, uh, Richard still is in my mind. Certain people transcend the timeline. Right. And he was was one of those, like, the one of the first movies I remember from Richard Pryor coming up was The Toy. Um, right. Because as a kid, that was yeah. one of the first movies Jackie I've seen. Gleason. Yeah, yeah, Jackie, Jackie Gleason. Gleason. Uh, Scott Scott Schwartz, I think, was the kid in there. But um, then later on, I've seen him in films like Harlem Nights and uh, Hear No Evil, See No Evil, and Brewster's Million and stuff like that. So I got to experience more of his films, you know, as I got a little older. But you actually developed, you know, a little bit, of a friendship with Richard. Didn't he like invite you to your house or invite you to his yeah. house for a boxing yeah. match? Yes, he did. Actually. Uh, it was Sugar Ray Hagler fight. Uh, we were on set one day. He said, Robert, what are you doing uh, next week? And I'm like, Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to the Oscars. So I, just, uh, I was you know, stuck in the hotel in universal city, man, doing nothing, staring at the wall. And he said, well, you want to come over to my house and watch the fight? I said, yeah, sure. Twist my arm. You know? Wow. And, uh, but you know, just a, a quick history lesson for people who might not know that, Richard Pryor, man, he changed the game. Him and Red Fox were yeah. uh, crucial in terms of uh, a, a game change and a shifting of perception because I think they got tired of being locked up in a box. And so Richard you know, went up against certain powerful people and decided to take his act in a direction that might be perceived as controversial. He did just that. And I think he, he definitely uh, paved the way for so many young comedians to follow suit, Eddie Murphy especially, and then the rest so that they weren't uh, being told by a certain community of Hollywood to keep it clean or do your thing a certain way, you know? So um, him and Red, Red Fox, Richard Pryor were groundbreaking in their approach to stand up as they progressed and evolved and were allowed. Maybe they weren't allowed, like whatever, I'm going to do it anyway. And then to meet someone who was so personable to me when I was going through a stage in my life where I didn't know up and down, left and right. And, Identity crisis still, despite the fact that I got hired to be in this film. And I was in Hollywood under contract with Warner Brothers for three months. A year prior to that, I was in the military, man. So it was surreal. I couldn't believe that it was even happening. We sat down and do the script read through. Dana Carvey was there. Uh, a whole host of actors, man. Richard Pryor was there. You know, Alan Metter, who directed Back to School, Rodney Dangerfield, he was there. All of them watching us, Stuart Kornfeld, who went on to produce a lot of the Ben Stiller movies, he yeah. was there. So I'm sitting at this you know, king's table, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, a very humble subject, <laughs> you know, shaking pretty much, or trying not to shake, and read through this thing and not show any cracks in my armor so that, you know, because, you know, you never know, right? Right. And, uh, and uh, so that part was, it was a bit frightening to me. But once I got past the fear, and I was able to overcome that and just get into the damn thing uh, and, and saw that people were being nice to me and saying very uh, supportive things I needed to hear that people weren't telling me where I grew up and people around me that were supposed to be my caretakers were not giving me any real positive reinforcement. People that I didn't hardly know were telling me things. They're whispering in my ear little things. Hey, Robert, hey, Robert, hey, Robert, hey, Robert. And uh, I didn't realize until years later the significance of these comments that were made to me. I did realize, though, because love is love. You feel it. Mm -hmm. Either someone loves you or they don't. And I felt that Richard clearly had an affection for me. And he said some things to me that cemented in my, in my consciousness, very similar to what my acting teacher, Anthony Apeson, had suggested very strongly about persistence, commitment, and not for nothing. And that there was something going on that I had to be respectful to and honor it. 
And Richard pointed it out to me as well. He saw it. I, I was probably the only one who couldn't see it. So it was the acting teacher, but it was the English teacher, then my Anthony Apeson at Performing Arts, and then Richard Pryor, this living legend, whispered in my ear some things that nobody in my life, other than my acting teacher and this English teacher, had suggested to me in the possibility of what was for the takings, more or less, in terms of a career. Mm-hmm. I didn't believe it, you know, uh, until uh, I started believing it. And when I started believing it, my whole life changed. And so it wasn't just the movie that was, uh, you know, uh, auspicious and this incredible event for me and a stamp of approval and showing me that it was possible, but it was what was said to me during that process, because it's not on every Hollywood movie you go on where people are personable like that. People are so enveloped with their own ego trips most of the time that they don't even see you, man. They're too busy looking at themselves. That's just the nature of the beast, right? So to have someone step outside themselves and, you know, express that kind of affection in in a human way in a world that's become so subhuman, even then, you know, because Hollywood's Hollywood, right? It was a, a gift from God, man. And Richard, you know, and he was, God was talking through Richard in the form of love and mercy and no judgment. He didn't care about my tattoos because I had gotten so much flack, Chip, when I was going on auditions after I got out of the Navy, uh, showing up at auditions. And the agent was always getting the feedback. Well, Robert's really talented, but you got a problem with those tattoos, man. So I lost a lot of jobs uh, in the first year of auditioning. Like he, his, his talent is probably more apparent than most of the people we saw today. but. There's a scene where he's got to take his shirt off. He's got all these tats all over his body, and we can't hire him. And so I started to lose uh, faith in what my acting teacher was telling me. He simply said, Robert, I said, yeah, keep your shirt on. You know, he's like, all right, keep my shirt on. <laughs> yeah, I, I got the joke. And then I just kept persisting. And then eventually, once I'm there in Hollywood, I'm realizing, you know what? Don't pay attention to none of that noise about the ink because it wasn't cool back in the 80s to have tattoos. Mm-hmm. It wasn't trendy. Dennis Rodman hadn't showed up to the basketball court yet. Right. None of these young men and women that are all beautiful weren't tapping up their neck. There was none of that around. So yeah. walking around in public, looking the way I did, people looked at me funny. They wanted either afraid of me, say things to me like, oh, my God, you're so smart. But your tattoos don't you any do you any justice. You know, people constantly throwing rocks at me and then running away or these backhanded compliments and uh, show up at auditions and cast and director would be like, oh, excuse me, the messenger engines are around back. Like I'm some homunculus, man. And I just, I, uh, it hurt at first. And then, you know, I built a skin to deal with it. You have to either do or die. Like, combat. yeah, no, you just, I, you know, I just developed a thick skin. I just kept going, man. I just kept going. I remember what Richard told me and I put my blinders on, I focused on the, on the goal and the task. And I didn't listen to anybody. And I would suggest that to anybody out there who wants to do something, don't listen to anybody except the voice that comes from your higher power that says to you, do this, because your heart feels to do that. Not your mind, your heart and your soul are driven to go toward a certain place. I don't care about the ministry of logic. There is no logic in show business. There is no logic in creativity. There's only a love affair with the art form and commitment to that art form. And then you manifest something. People go, did you see that? (laughs) Yeah. And that's, that's a great point because I mean, I think society has gotten a little better at accepting it because it is a little bit more mainstream and in your face now with 
especially with, you know, the dawn age of social media, but you made a great point. Like Rodman hadn't showed up, you know, on the scene in basketball by that point, he was like your first bad boy of basketball, you know, you, and you really, I mean, that, that I can remember was one of the first ones in, in Hollywood doing, you were doing that shit before it was cool. It's cool now, but you were doing that shit way before them. I mean, yeah, 19, by 1985, I was discharged from the, the Navy. I had full sleeves. You know? I didn't just have a giant tattoo on my chest. Right. I had full sleeves. I had one on my hand. I was covered, man. So it wasn't like I had one big one. I had, you know, someone say, how many tattoos you have? I said, well, it starts here. <laughs> and it ends up down here somewhere. Yeah. And I make them laugh. When you you got to find, you got to find humor in this thing, man. It's yeah. When you, thing. when you got sleeves, you start to have to point out like each section is like, well, that's one that it, it's all really one big piece of artwork is that what it is. What I'm saying. Yeah. I took my, I took my cue from an old a biker buddy of mine, made rest in peace. He said, Rob, just tell me you got one big one. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's one a bit. Yeah, that's it. I got one big one. It's called me. Got one big, especially with the chest. Oh, that's funny. So you do land, as we mentioned earlier. I said you worked with Steven Seagal. You landed hard to kill, and then later on, out for justice. Out for justice to me, for my money, was a, a very, I guess. It, it didn't get the recognition. I don't think it deserved. It was really good. William Forsythe acted his ass off in that movie. Um, yeah. What was your experience like on those sets working with what working with Steven Stagall? Well, the genesis of that was akin to what I described with my situation or my experience with Richard Pryor. Steven was uh, very personable with me. I walked into the audition at Warner Brothers Studio and he just started a conversation with me right after my audition. He said, you know what I think? And he looked at the director and said, I think this young man's a consummate actor. Didn't say nothing about my ink. I mean, at that point, you know, I was I was showing them all up. I, had t- I wasn't afraid anymore. I was wearing short sleeve shirts. Mm-hmm. He didn't mention nothing about it. And uh, then we did Hard to Kill. And then I was on set with him and Kelly. He was married to Kelly LeBrock at the time. Yep. And then uh, after we were in between takes, he just started talking to me. He asked me about the tattoos and my life and stuff. And I was talking to his wife and we were having a conversation. He said, listen, I'm going to make this movie about these guys in Brooklyn, man, you know, I got this screenplay I'm putting together, and there's going to, I'm going to, there's going to be a role in there for it. I'm like, okay, cool. And, uh, you know, a year later, man, uh, I get a phone call from my agent, and they're like, Steven Seagal wants you to meet him and his director. So he's one of these rare occurrences where somebody actually does what they say, and he did, man. And uh, I went down there. I went uptown. I was in New York at the time, and uh, I met the director. I met Steven, and uh, – it was a handshake and a couple of words, a little improv, and that was it. Left two weeks later. Guess who's going to Hollywood again? I got the job. And so Stephen took an affection to me early on. And um, and then we made out for justice, man. Had a ball doing that. Had a great time doing it. Anybody seen Richie? Anybody seen Richie? Yeah. <laughs> Billy and Billy Ford. I call him Billy. Me and William, you know, we run into each other here and there. We've done some other stuff together. And we did some conventions overseas in Europe and you know, he was running through, he was, he was coming out of the elevator. I think it was in Germany or in Germany. He goes, where's Bobby? Cause they call me Bobby. Hey, where's, where's Bobby? So, you know, cause he heard I was there. So after all these years just to see him and to reconnect like that, it was beautiful, man. Yeah. You know, reunion. It was, you know, a lot of water under the bridge. Yeah, for sure. And William's another great actor, man. You guys are like those cogs that 
are so important to, to movies that keep them going. Because when you see him, he's like, Oh, I, I was showing a guy at work today. I was like, you know, this is an interview. And he's like, God, he looks familiar. What's he been in? And I'm like, I don't have the rest of the day to tell you all the shit he's been. In. He's been in a lot of stuff. And it's just, you know, those, those key components are just so important because, you know, much like you, uh, Forsyth himself is, you know, can do very different types of roles. Um, did you find a one that you kind of more zeroed in on? Did you like, you know, more action stuff? Cause you, at that point you hadn't really got into much of the horror yet. You kind of done that later in the career, but were you fine with doing that or was you wanting to experience some different type of work? What I wanted to experience and what happened, I dare say with two different things, man. Right. It's kind of like, you know, when you go to work and stuff, the boss tells you what to do. You don't tell the boss what you want to do. And then you find a way to own it, to right. love it to make it yours, to believe in it. It's a faith, bro. It's a forced attrition. You have to find something in it to care about. Otherwise, you're a fraud. You're a hack. You're pretending. You're not really going to the place. So I went to a lot of places, visited a lot of worlds in terms of character. had nothing to do with my background, nothing to do with whatever Robert is, Mm -hmm. for the sheer sake of what I was taught uh, on stage. No self-portrait. So, um, um, I don't know. I think recently I wrote and directed my own movie called American Trash is the closest thing I feel to me being true to the artistic requirements because I've been painted a certain way through by a perception, a subjective mm-hmm. pr- projection that has nothing to do with my ability, but a lot to do with my appearance. And I'm not mad about it because it's a visual medium, man. Right. You know? People want to look at pretty people. They want to look at pretty men, pretty women, pretty whatever, or ugly something, something scary, you know? So it's it's a visual medium. So a lot of it has to do with, like you were saying, who you know, because if a director likes you and you got the corporation behind you, you're good to go. You know, yeah. Robert Rodriguez shows up and Quentin Tarantino shows up and they say, we're going to anoint you. You're anointed. Your name becomes household. But these people that, y'all, that you mentioned before connected to the Scorsese movies, I dare say with respect to their talents, because they're usually talented, man. I don't know if they'd have the career they have right now had it not been for that rock star genius director, this, you know, uh, auteur who showed up and said, you know what, I'm going to anoint thee, put thee in several of my movies. And because I'm going to be this Academy Award winning director, you're going to come for the ride with me. So people have to understand that if you're an independent and you don't have the power of the gang like in the joint. You know, in the, the joint prisons, there's all gangs. You got oh, these yeah. guys, those guys. Never, you, know, you got to belong to a gang because you have power in the gang. It's, it's like Hollywood's the same way, man, in that sense. There's power in certain circles that decide for whatever reason that they want to push or promote something. It could be a culturism. It could be whatever. But when you have the power of the group and the, that group has that those people have access to the money, you ascend rather quickly because you're connected to that. Right. If you don't have that, then you kind of have to like some somebody in prison, independent. You have to fight on your own without the support of the group because there's strength in numbers. Right. And the politic play of that. And I've always been an independent man. I had nobody other than prior Steven Seagal. And Ryan Murphy briefly with Nip Tuck and uh, what's his name? A good buddy of mine, David Caruso, who decided to put me on CSM Miami because 
we were in China Girl together. Right. He always liked me. We did NYPD Blue together. I saw the what it, the, I saw little traces of what can happen when you have a friend who knows your talent and your capability and is this position of power who can lift you through the ceiling. Because you get to a point, I don't care how talented you are, Chip. You go on 5,000 auditions and nail them all. You reach a ceiling, even and get and you get jobs. You can do all the drop zones you want, but you get to a ceiling. You hit a ceiling, and unless some entity reaches through this, I'm using symbolism, reaches through the ceiling here and pulls you up to the next level, you just don't get promoted, man. Right. That's the political element. And there, anybody says there ain't no political element doesn't know the industry. Right. So in a sense, it is who you know. A big part of it is who you know, but it's also what you know, meaning. The people that are going to put, put, promote you recognize that you have an ability to do something, but you can have ability all day, man. And if the right person is not in a position of power to bring you to what people call some next level stuff, right. you're not getting to the next level. You stay stuck in the Charlie Manson cage and purgatory because of perception of being pariah, the outcast, the devil, the one, the evil one that has to stay in a stasis so that we can sell something. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, I've had to digest that philosophy, uh, even though it has nothing to do with, with me, you know? So I would say to the point is, is that you asked me if there was something in particular, I say, no, other than my own work, my own creation, something that I wrote from right. my heart that I need after 35 years, wanted to communicate, uh, in a screenplay, use my own money and hire actors that I felt could, deliver and uh now i feel you know regardless of the result whether people like the movie it's in post-production now whether they like it or not at least i can tell my when i go to you know uh acting school heaven or whatever you know when i leave <laughs> this world and i'm faced by the jury of peers who say so robert what did you do with your life you know we, we saw you did some things but do you feel honestly sitting here or standing here before us that you really feel that you pay tribute to the art form, I'd say up and no, until I made an apology toward at this stage of my career for committing sedition against the art form, treason, and allowing myself willfully to take contracts that did not demonstrate what I feel and a lot of people feel were art. art. It's more like um, thrill rides of entertainment mm -hmm. that involve a, a sort of masochism or sadism of violence, you know, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. People like to watch violent movies. They like to watch action movies. They get into that sort of thing. They want to see the devil. They want to see something go bang. They want to see, you know, that kind of stuff. But I would say in my heart, being sensitive and poetic in the way I view movies, because I watch movies, I don't watch a lot of the stuff that I'm in. I don't watch, I watch movies that people probably would never suspect that I would watch. I watch these slice of life movies, you know, about regular everyday people going through extraordinary situations and have to overcome them. Kind of like my life. I can relate right. to real people. So I wanted to write a story that deals with real people thrown into a very turbulent world of Los Angeles as it's fallen into ruin, helter skelter, you know, the trash, the pollution, the violence, the whatever. And somebody gets killed. And how do you deal with the loss? How do people either come together to heal one another or how do they uh, find a way not to increase on that chaos, man. So I feel like my career has been lessons in barbarism and chaos. I wanted to show that in my own way, but then find a resolution to it and 
reclamation for the character so that it doesn't always have to be, uh, well, he ends up in hell. Right. You know, he, you know, what about love? What about forgiveness? What about mercy? What about character growth? All humans face temptations in their lives. Absolutely. So I want to create a situation with characters that are human, not <clears throat> superheroes, but in the way that they face tragedy and face violence in a realistic way, they have to make significant choices that are going to change your lives forever because people deal with that every day. Mm-hmm. So I thought, how do I tell a story like that, make it entertaining and also without pushing a message because I'm not preaching, but have a profundity present in the story and the writing that people can go, wow, man, I feel that that dude was in combat. He came back from the war and uh, he fell in love with this girl and she kind of changed him, you know, and then uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he, before that though, he didn't see the world any the same way. The war messed him up over there. He saw things that no human should ever see. And he hasn't been right since then, you know. And then he finds love or love finds him and anoints him the possibility of liberation from that hell, man. And I think as an artist, for me, a lot of us want to liberate ourselves. Right. Because we're striving for perfection in the art form so we can be free, not so we can be weighed down with some... Uh, some nonsense is not communicating anything man, that has any meaning, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, real quick. How long do you have? Huh? How long do you have time? I don't know. Maybe I hope I live to maybe tomorrow. No, I, no, I, no for, the, for, for the, for the interview, the new year. <laughs> for the interview. As, as long as you need me, man, I'm here. I'm not going nowhere. I'm snowed in, bro. There's snow out there. I, I thought I there was snow on there. Okay. Cause yeah, uh, you, I'm, you, like, I'm in the shining right now. Okay. Um, we touched on earlier, uh, drop zone and I wanted to circle back for a little bit yep. for people that don't know, obviously you guys were a team of hijackers that would, uh, go down and get the information of what was it? A U.S. Mar- or federal agents or undercover federal agents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, at the Yancey Butler, uh, Wesley Snipes, Gary Busey, uh, Gary Busey's always just high energy and, and entertaining. What was that like on that set? That, that seemed like that would have been a fun one to do. Oh man. Yeah, it was, it, it was the, the energy was just everything you just said. Yeah. I, high energy. Uh, Gary was on fire and Wesley was very Zen, but he was on fire too in his own very mm-hmm. Buddhist way. Yeah. And, uh, the two of them, I think found, uh, some type of balance between the polarities, you know, yeah. too extreme because they had to go at it, you know, and uh, yeah. Wesley's another one uh, who took an affection for me because I've known Wesley from King of New York. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, oh, I, I forgot all about yeah. him being in King of New York. Wow. Yeah. And uh, so watching them together was interesting to me because uh, I saw them deal with what a lot of men deal with, you know, you know, they're the, 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 uh, the you know, if you're the alpha and, and leading a group of people, uh, you got to kind of find a way to lead without abusing that power. Mm-hmm. And so that you don't become corrupt, whether it's the character or behind the scenes, you know. So it's interesting to watch people deal with the Vanity Fair while we're filming. Uh, and uh, yeah, so but it was everyone, I think, at the end of the day, walked away from that movie. Uh, feeling pretty good. We all had a good time. And I got to see some things that were really mind-blowing. I went out to dinner with the Wesley Snipes one night, 
in, in South Beach back in the day. And then Sylvester Stallone walked in. And I thought, you know, Wesley would jump up and give him a hug and they'd shake hands or something. They didn't even look at each other. Man, he walked right past them <laughs> like he didn't exist. I thought, okay, uh, maybe Demolition Man was such a cool experience. Yeah, you know? I was about to say, I don't know when that was, but maybe that Demolition Man didn't go like they wanted. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the gentleman that was one of Wesley's trainers, his martial arts trainer, was telling me that uh, when they were fighting, there were some of the fight sequences that uh, Stallone was a little bit nervous when Wesley started kicking. Yeah. He said, Watch the easy on the kick in there, Wes. He didn't yeah. like when Wesley threw kicks. Oh. And then the Gary, I think, uh, he wanted me to go to Denver one night. And this was kind of like one of these things where, like, I'm in jail again and I got to choose which uh, crew I'm going to yeah. roll in, you know? Because, uh, you know, I said, You okay, Wes? He says, Yeah, I'm fine, man. I said, Because we had that fight sequence, but, you know, Wesley and I, I right. said, I didn't do anything wrong because there was one scene I had a kick and I actually made contact with his fingers. I that, really that was out there at the at the bathroom when he went out there to save uh, Swoop because uh, what's the name was roughing up Swoop in the bathroom. Yeah. yeah. And at, at the end of the film, in the staircase, we have a fight sequence. Yep. And when I was kicking on those on those metal uh, on those metal uh, metal bars there, I caught his hand there and I felt bad about it. He said, don't worry, man. I'm not worried about it. I don't, I'm not concerned about you. You know, because him and Gary had to get it on. So I don't yeah. know if... Uh, you know, uh, all I can say is that uh, they worked it out. Yeah. Did you <laughs> actually skydive any during that movie or? Yeah, I skydived after the movie, not during. They okay. Let, they wouldn't let uh, us skydive because of insurance issues. Right. Of somebody. But I did hear there was a rumor, though, that Wesley went up anyway and he jumped just so he could feel what it was like. Yeah. And, uh, I've heard that insurance purposes keeps a lot of people from doing that. I think one of the only ones that I've heard of in past movies was I think Swayze was able to pull it off during point break yeah. because he absolutely refused to not do it at least once. Yeah. I think it was, it was the end when they jumped out of the plane, like at the very end of the movie, when they yeah. left Keanu up there with no shoot. I think that yeah. was an actual jump by, by Swayze. And all the studio execs almost had a stroke when they saw that. I bet, I bet they did. They <laughs> did. To, I've seen the documentary when they were talking about that, when they saw the footage, was like, that's not green screen. <laughs> Got their million dollar man flying, hurtling towards earth there. Yeah. Now you done a movie with, uh, Tupac and Jim Belushi gang related, right? Yes, I did. Did you get a chance to work or, or speak with Tupac very much on that film? Yeah, briefly, not a whole lot, but a little bit. And, uh, it was, uh, kind of unsettling in a way because, uh, the last time I saw Tupac, we did the scene where, uh, in the movie, they find them uh, on the ground. Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I play a DEA agent right. looking at the wall where the blood, you know, blood is and the, the fragments of the, you know, the skull mm -hmm. where he was shot and all that. And then two weeks later, I found out what had happened. That he'd been shot for real. So it was kind of so bizarre. I, I knew that was the last movie that he had filmed because I believe mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure it came out after his, his death. And that was the last one. So that was only a two week gap between that scene and then I him dying. Yeah, I'd say I'd say somewhere around there. Yeah, but wasn't wasn't that long after we, we f finished that film. Wow! I heard I couldn't believe it. I was like, "What?" Now, I was in a car. Someone was driving me somewhere, and I'm like, "Yeah, you didn't hear about it? I don't know nothing about it." And I thought, "Well, the last time I saw him, he was play acting his death in this film we did called Gang Related, and uh, that was the last time I saw Tupac." Wow! Now I thought the pairing of him and and Belushi was a little odd, but they made it work in that film. Belushi played a great dirty cop. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, I think he's actually got his own uh, pot farm out there now. He's doing, he's growing pot. 
Oh no! Oh wow! Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yes. Belushi Farms. Belushi Farms. He's doing. He's doing it. I think he's in Oregon, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong on location, but I do if know he's. Do a, it, if you're gonna do it, that's the place to do it. Yeah. <laughs> that's the place to do it. Yeah. Uh, another good one that you were in that was always uh, one of my favorites too was In Too Deep with uh, LL oh, and Omar Epps. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, everybody yeah. always has that debate of who's the greatest rapper or actor. And while Tupac is definitely in that conversation, LL can't be far from right there, if not the best, because I thought, especially in that movie, he embodied that role of God so good. Like he, you could just tell when people just take to a role and he took to that role. Uh, did you have any experiences on that film with LL or any of the other guys? No, the only person I really had experiences with was Omar Epps because he I had those are the scenes. Right. And I met Pam Greer. She was very nice to me. Mm-hmm. And uh uh Karina Ariave, she I met her. Uh she was uh, in that film as well. And uh yeah, so but uh yeah, I, I remember Omar being a very polite and uh, just a gentleman. Yeah. And uh yeah, and it was just it was, you know, I felt like we we're making something that had a that had value. I felt yeah. the creative aspect of it held together. And we're, you can tell when you're doing sequences when the actors are on point and they, they know their stuff. Right. And there was high tension. I could feel it. You know, when we did the scene where uh, he, we realized he's a cop, and uh, you know, we had to pull out the guns on him and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't disrespectful. He played it realistically, but he didn't have to. You know, some people, they don't know how to utilize the craft. They dig into their own personal, you know, thingamajig, and then they become arrogant. Mm-hmm. And they think that method, they think that's appropriate. And sometimes people get hurt when you do that, and that's not cool. Um, when you uh, forget that people are human, and it's a dance, and it's yeah. play pretend. You can't really hurt people for real for the sake of your own glory. But I didn't experience anything like that with Omar. He was actually very nice, like I said to me. And we had a good time making it. And I watched the sequence. And I thought, wow, that was intense, man. Yeah, that and even intense. at the end of that sequence, you know, he he refused to believe that he was a cop. And, you know, I've talked to undercover uh, officers on this channel before. Mm-hmm. And they've told me those stories when they're, they're so good at what they do that even when, like, they would walk in a room and say, hey, I'm with, you know, DEA, ATF, or whatever, some of the people just wouldn't believe him because they were so believable and their facade, I guess, if you will, of, of being, you know, whatever they were portraying at the time, be it a biker or a mobster or, or whatever. And th- that is the mark of really being able to do grid undercover work is even when you find out you refuse to believe it. Well, when you, if you go deep enough, man, you start to recognize things that confuse the mind, which is that, in my opinion, that this idea of good borrows its virtue from evil. Exactly. 100%. And once you start to realize that they're not that there's a lot of gray there and the poles aren't separate. They start to come together. You go, wait a minute. Kind of like some of my brothers who served over in the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, they come into realization when they witness some things over there and come back to the United States and then not being taken that good care of by their own government that sent them to do things kind of indicative of what we did in World War II mm-hmm. or what some other people did in World War II, kicking doors in and, and taking people out of their homes. So I don't know, man. It's a moral thing. It's a political thing. I don't get into it, but I will say, you know, to the point that you speak that, um, yeah, I wouldn't want to do that. I mean, I was a cop and right. I remember what it was like because I was busting dudes for drugs, man. I had my dog King was not only a tack dog, he was a drug dog. So I'd go through the barracks 
and he'd sniff, you know, the bunk, the bunk beds. He'd sniff, he'd sniff, 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 and then sometimes he'd alert. Next thing you know, you know, I'm arresting somebody, man. So I was not well liked. I was a narc, man. Yeah. And then, uh, there were people that I liked, but I wasn't. I couldn't hang out with them because they were dirty, man. But I liked them, and the people that were supposedly good, I didn't trust them. Mm-hmm. So I found myself in a really weird world, man. And then when yeah. I left that island, I heard that my some of my chief my some of my commanding officers got arrested for some something, and, and some people ended up in federal prison. So, you know, you start to realize when you're, these instincts you have may not be so imaginary. Right. And uh, so anyway, the, you know, I don't know, man. I wouldn't want to – I wouldn't – you know, I, I respect any man who has the uh, the soul the power or the, the strength of psyche to go into that hell and to try to find any kind of ministry of logic in there or there is none. Or withstand the uh, hypocrisy of that world. Yeah, you know, and and not snitch because you can't. You yeah. got to be quiet. And I think you know, that's why a lot of them get lost in that. Can't say nothing. You can't say nothing. Can't say nothing. Can't mm-hmm. turn. Can't turn. You're a snitch. Mm-hmm. Got no snitch on my back. I'm doing my number. You do your number. We know who you guys. You doing what you do, but we don't want you know. So you, there's fragmentation. This idea of good. <laughs> And then sometimes good abuses its power. And then like in that movie Prophecy, you know, mm-hmm. when, uh, what the name says to Archangel Gabriel says, your war is about arrogance. That makes it evil. That's mine. You know, so as soon as the law becomes arrogant, then it's not righteous anymore. Yep. It's not balanced in what it perceives. It has its own agenda. Absolutely. And I think men who, who get involved in that kind of world, they realize that this idea of good guy and bad guy, man. It's like a cartoon reel, man. That's why people say to me, you played a bad guy. I laugh in their face. I say, you don't know the world you're living in, man. So what does yeah. that mean? That the people running the country are the good guys? Yeah. <laughs> They're probably the most corrupt out of all of them. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, if anything, I'm the honest guy. Yeah. Meaning like like, like Chino said in Scarface, he says, hey, you need people like me so you can point, point your, your fucking finger fingers. Say, yeah. the bad guy, right? But what does that make you? Yeah. Does that make you good? You know, so... You got to be careful with these terms. I don't know if there's any altruism in terms of humanity's struggle to come into awareness and manifest the light. Man has been struggling for thousands of years with his own equanimity not to behave like an animal. Mm-hmm. And then we put costumes on people and we delegate, well, this is the good one. This is the hero that go after. So in a sense, we can create cosmic theater as a demonstration of ideally what we'd like to happen. But the reality is, are we really manifesting that? Yeah. <laughs> or we gotten so pulled into that screen we watched thinking that this kumbaya thing that Hollywood do now and putting everybody together this multicultural experience yeah man we're all together now and I'm hearing stories man that have nothing to do with what I witnessed on that screen man actually complete opposite of that it's a fairy tale man now I'm not trying to be bitter I'm not trying to be negative I'm just being realistic no you're yeah absolutely and I think that that lends itself to like you know, I, I think about shows like The Sopranos and, and Sons of Anarchy, where the viewers find themselves pulling and rooting for the bad guy. And, and I'll say right now, Sopranos is probably one of my most favorite TV shows of all time. And, you know, people love James Gandolfini. And at the end of the day, if you step back and look at it, he was a bad fucking dude. Like, he constantly cheated on his wife. He killed multiple people. I mean, he'd done a lot of bad shit, but... People loved him. And same thing with, with Sons of Anarchy. You know, those guys done a lot of bad stuff, but people loved him and they gravitated to him because their their personalities 
were strong and it was what it was that that was in the mob you know it wasn't like killing for one stranger to another to them it was business you know where where in my world if i don't do something right my boss is going to fire me and send me home and that world if you don't do something right unfortunately the alternative is death uh and a lot like that in the biker world too but it, it's crazy how much you know fanfare that those people got you weren't rooting for the cops to bust any of those in any of those shows you were always rooting for the bad guy Um, so you actually got a chance to work with Clint Eastwood in the mule. Yes. What yes. was that like working with Eastwood? Cause I mean, you want to talk about legends. I mean, that's, that's, that's a legend right there. Yeah. That's another example of uh, a surreal experience. Is this really happening? Yeah. Uh, so we're all a little bit intimidated. And then when I met Andy Garcia, it was the same thing. He was sitting there, you know, um, just, you know, um, unassuming. He said, hi, I'm Andy. And I shook his hand. I said, it's an honor to meet you, sir. And he put his hand up by my, by the back of my head, like some old uncle. I won't say old, some uncle, some family uncle that had an affection for me. The way he touched the back of my head, man, I could feel that he appreciated that I called him sir. And that I, in that moment, he could feel how he affected me as a performer, he felt all of that and he embraced it rather than shushing it away, his ability to embrace it and show me love and give the same thing back. Love and respect was really beautiful. It was the same thing with Clint Eastwood. He was uh, unassuming, gentle, and just like, like a ghost. He was there and not there at the same time. One eye was on directing. The other eye was the character. Right. And uh, you knew he was there. But you really couldn't really find him, you know, and you didn't want to try to find him. You just want to do a good job. Right. When we first got on set, I think everybody felt like, okay, don't mess up. You know, it's kind of like take that first shot. You're in combat. Don't shake. There's the target. Bang. It's like delivering the first line to Clint. Make sure you deliver it right. Don't stutter. Don't forget the line because you're fine. You're not just firing at any target. You're finding out a target that has significant value. If you miss that shot, the world ends. Mm-hmm. Your world ends. Yeah. And this man, who's not just a man, he's an institution. He's all sorts of things. He's gotten into your psyche over the years because you watch how many movies that he's been in. Good, Bad, The Ugly, Dirty Harry. You know, uh, he directed, uh, you know, Breezy. I mean, I go down a catalog of movies that people, you know, uh, you know, what is it? Uh, Play Misty for me. Yeah. He wasn't just an actor. He was a director. He's done so many things, so prolific, that you're not just meeting the man. You're meeting all the body of work mm-hmm. that has infiltrated or, you know, kind of worked its way into your psyche, man. And so you got to overcome that in a way. But at the same time, be present to it. You know, and that was, I found that to be the most challenging aspect, not to be so in awe of what I was stand, who I was standing in front of, that I could not do my work. I could not become Emilio, not become this guy who had to, in a way, almost not patronize him, but, hey, old man, you don't know how to text, man, you know? Yeah. And so there was a part of me that was like, wow, man. But once I, uh, once I uh, took out my magic wand, 
It was like any other show, man. I just got deep into it. And he saw that I was a guy. I got deep into it. He went as deep as I went with me. And the cool thing about Clint Eastwood was and is, was that when I started to go off page, off the script, I started ad-libbing. He went right with me because I just started playing jazz, man. I started. I just decided in the scene to throw another line and do something different to show him that I was so immersed in the material in the moment. And I could get back on the page as quickly as I got off. And he saw that and he did it with me, man. And so some my friend, a, a guy, a colleague of mine said to me, there were some of those moments that were improvised, weren't they? Yeah, I could tell, man, because there was a natural uh, ebb and flow with you guys. Uh, uh, the way you were interacting felt very relaxed and natural, man. Yeah. I said, yeah. And he, you know, some directors and movie stars, if you steer from the path this much, you know, you get a, a shellacking. Yeah. You know, stick to the script, stick to the dialogue, stick to this. He, I found him to be a very, uh, a very open-minded, very uh, actor's director, man, because he allowed you that freedom and room to experience the moment without limitation. He didn't lord over you. Hey, I'm Clint Eastwood. Do it my way. He allowed the scene and the crew as well. They allowed the whole thing to breathe and find its own way. And it did, man. And it was magic. What? And afterwards, he was so just like chill. And I remember when we broke for lunch, um, I saw a man standing in the back of the line, old man, and I realized it was Clint Eastwood. He had literally placed himself at the back of the line and let everybody go in front of him to eat their lunch. And then when he finally sat down to eat his lunch, he sat with the crew. He wasn't ushered away by some security. There wasn't anybody around him to tell him, stay away from Clint Eastwood. He was so approachable, yet you didn't want to approach him. Yeah. Because you wanted to respect the man and give the man his space. So he commanded that power, but didn't lord it over anybody. He was just there. Yeah. Like a bodhisattva, man. You knew he was enlightened. and, and yeah. but you, you know what I mean? But it didn't feel uncomfortable. It felt after you, once you realized everything was cool, you got over your being starstruck and oh man, I'm making a movie with Clint Eastwood. You got into it. It was just beautiful, man. And that's beautiful. good that he let you guys improv and, and you obviously being a, a veteran actor. He let me improv. Yeah. The rest of, the rest of them stuck to the book. <laughs> I was the one. Well, and, and that's got, let me let me explain something to you because sometimes when you do these movies. They're not the production. The producers, directors aren't clear where they want to place people. Right. So actors are placed in a position where you got to fight for position. You're placed in a circumstance where you got to fight for position. I thought to myself, well, I'm going to take control of this scene, man. And I did. And they saw that. And the next day they said, you're going to, okay, clearly Clint noticed some things about what you were doing. So now you're the one running the garage. You're in charge of shit. Right. But originally it was ambiguous. They weren't sure which guy was running shit. So when I stepped up, I made sure to take it, own it, make it mine, and blow the rest of them off the road like death race. Yeah. I didn't care about the rest of them. It was me and Clint, and I knew in my mind and in my heart what I had to do, and I did it. And he saw that. And so in that sense, I was immediately promoted on the day. The next day, you're here now. So well, well, that came through on the screen. Because I was not afraid to go off book. I was not afraid to do everything I've been doing prior to, I forgot he was Clint Eastwood, man. I said, I'm what I am. He wants me to play this. He wants it real. He's going to get real, man. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to get right in on him, but I'm not going to do it in a way that's over the top. I'm going to do it in a real, like very charming way, you know? And he saw that and he goes, Oh shit. He's kind of, and that's what he noticed. The rest of them, 
I'm not disrespecting them, but I saw them doing the mechanics of it because I could see they were f- afraid and mm-hmm. I saw what they were doing. And I saw, okay, I know what to do. It's a chess game, man. Yeah. I no. hate to say it because acting, unfortunately or fortunately, in my business, it's not a it's not a team effort. It's a track and field event sometimes, and you gotta you gotta get there first or you lose. Right. You can't necessarily now when you do a collaboration of an independent film, sometimes then maybe you can work together and everybody raises the level of the scene because everyone has their own input and raises the frequency of that scene and that dialogue. In certain search situations, you will fall back into a caricature if you do not step up front and say, fuck this caricature shit. I'm going to take control of this. I'm going to own it. And I'm going to make it real. You got to do that. You can't wait for them to anoint you. You anoint yourself and your mm-hmm. truth and who you are. And I've been all these years of doing this thing. You think I'm suddenly going to forget where I've been, who I've been with. Yeah. You know, I brought all just like Clint brought his whole life and his legacy. I brought whatever, you know, little thing I brought to me. It's not little. It's still, it's like blood, bro. Yeah. Whether it's a bathful, bathtub full of blood or a drop it's still blood man so you bring blood to blood blood knows blood and sees itself and goes wow man this dude is really in it and that's what you do man otherwise you get left behind well i can tell you that came through on the scene you could tell right off the bat that once he entered that garage the man that he needed to talk to was you it was very clear as a viewer and as someone watching that film that when he pulled in that garage you was the guy in charge. So that, that was very well done and very well delivered by you. So kudos. You, I appreciate the compliment. Now, another one that was, in my opinion, I feel like you kind of got to still play, you know, a badass, but you got to stretch your legs a little bit with some different stuff, but there was comedic aspects to it too, was your role in nipped up. I mean, I, I love that role. Um, you know, obviously I can't speak for you, but was that one of your most favorite roles that you've ever done or is it is up there? I'm going to go back to my original thought on this, on the subject. Cause I know you'd asked me this prior to this uh, prior to that ship about if I had something in particular that I have an affection for. And I would say, no, I don't. Um, I never watched the show really that much. Um, I was afraid to, I was afraid to, I didn't even go to the premiere of death race. That movie I was in, I didn't go see it. Wow. Um, so um, I enjoy the process. I remember when we were filming it, nip tuck that there were moments where i felt poetic flight i was like wow that was a great take and i knew i was in the presence of genius with ryan murphy mm-hmm. in the way that he was directing and i could tell with the other actors too their ability their skill set was really a plus you know and i thought okay i'm finally in a ring now with some real fighters man mm-hmm. none of the hacks you know pretending something whatever these guys were the real deal i said great finally i can get down you know and and all the stuff i've been taught can utilize and throw that away too. And then just, you know, let the, uh, let the, uh, let it take over. And so it just felt like, you know, like, like it just, all the stuff I had done prior to that, these characters that lived in this world, this, uh, kingpin, this, uh, this, uh, overlord, this, uh, gangster guy, whatever you want to label them. Um, every, all these shows I did prior to that, the CSI, the, you know, Boomtown, I go down a whole, I was doing all kinds of episodic stuff. Uh, on television though in those days where there's a character similar to Escobar mm-hmm. uh, that to me were just training ground yeah. for the ultimate fight. The only difference, uh, the only thing was I didn't know it was a championship fight. I went into it like any other thing, fully committed, ready to fight, 
And I didn't really concern myself. I'm not like one of these people. I didn't even call myself an actor. I'm not one of these performers that pays attention to who's in it. You know, I'm not, I don't go into the analytics of casting or the significance of the show. I don't let that, to me, that just interferes with my creative process, man. And has, it's not spiritual. It, it lives in a bank somewhere. Yeah. Because it's all about evaluating well, who's in this. What do you, I don't care who's in it. I know that I'm given a task. I read the material. I envision it. Imagination takes hold of it. And I know the director and the writer. The writer definitely wants me to honor the material and bring it to life, bring it up off the page. The director's watching to see how I do that. They're all observing how I interpret their vision. And if I bring it to a life in a way that, one, honors them, two, blows their mind because they go, wait a minute, Robert. Yeah. You're doing stuff with this character, Escobar, that we didn't conceive when we wrote this. Really? Yeah. So we're going to bring you back. And then we're going to bring you back some more because you're doing I'm like, I didn't know what I was doing. I was simply taking the training that Anthony Abeson handed me, the skill, mm-hmm. the book, with all the tools that I've been practicing for years and, you know, practicing, practicing. You know, you keep grinding at it, grinding it, grinding, grinding. And here was an opportunity to just get in the ring again. I didn't know, though. The significance of the ring I was standing in until people started noticing me on the street. Go, hey, nip tuck, nip tuck. And I go, oh, okay, I guess this is making some impact, man. But to me, in terms of that disposition, it was just the same, more or less, a similar geography I was playing in. There, you know, mm-hmm. Hispanic, Latino character, you know, he's he, you know, he's he's got these certain qualities about him, you know, he's a He's a womanizer. He's a the drugs and da, 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 da. I'm like, okay, I know this world. I know this world. Okay, and he, you know, and it was just simply uh, conjuring another version of that. It's like you're looking at an object, right? Yeah. This idea of character, Robert Lasardo. But if you turn the object to different from different perspectives, you see the object from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. So he's always doing the same thing. I know it. If you turn the object this way, you see a side of it you didn't see before. You turn it this way, you see a side of it. From this perspective, if you're looking at it this way, you can't see the back of it. So I wanted to find aspects of the same, of what people think is the same thing that were different, that are not like the other incarnation because the circumstances are different. Right. There's so many other variables that play into the building, the construct of that character arc. And the more intricate and in-depth the writing is, the more room I have to invent and play. Now, if they don't give me that, I've always been very good at communicating without words. Mm-hmm. This is what I tell a lot of actors. Well, I don't have a lot of lines. Don't worry about the lines. What do you mean? Communicate. You know, you can just stare at somebody and there's a whole inner dialogue going on, man. Do that. And they will feel the impact of that gaze. And they'll go, whoa, there's a lot going on with this person. So I never let the lines define what I was doing. I never let this, what people call this, is it a big role? Is it a little role? Has nothing to do with it. Has everything to do with the kind of impact you make. You know, like a bullet is small. But when you aim it at a target, if you hit the target right, it changes everything, right? Same thing. People don't remember a lot of the details in the movies they watch. They forget the names. They even forget the actors' names. But they remember moments in film that make impact because it goes, on it. whoa, oh, man, I felt that. I remember that scene in that movie. You remember when, when? They remember that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's not a lot of dialogue going on with that. It could just be a look. Yeah. You know, right when Al Pacino's looking through the car window, Right before the dude's getting in the car, and you know, you know, there's a bomb under the car, and just staring. I never forgot that look in his eye. He didn't say nothing. It was just the way he looked 
through the, not at the lens, he looked through the lens. Mm -hmm. And he realized what he had to do. He was not crazy. And when he saw those two kids, he realized, oh, shit, I'm not going to just kill this guy. I'm going to kill this family. And it suddenly dawned on him, shit, this is really bad. His whole interpretation of that scenario and circumstance changed his disposition. That was fascinating to watch. And it wasn't a monologue, a dialogue, man. They right. were moments that he played very realistically. And they stay with you. And that's what I, 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 I realized, that if they're not in the writing going to allow me the proper verbiage to communicate a character that has three dimensions, I'm going to create those dimensions in the way I manifest in front of the camera because the camera reads that. It read, that's why silent film, before sound, there was something called silent black and white movies. People would love to watch them because so much was communicated in the eyes, mm -hmm. the soul, the expressions, the body language. When you start to master that aspect of the art form without words, then you can really sneak it in on them, man, without the words. So you don't let the words get in the way. Yeah, that's another thing as we spoke of earlier that I think sometimes might go unnoticed by the general public, but those that look a little bit deeper, there are actors that, like you say, can work a scene with their eyes and just, you know, a certain gaze, a certain look, their body language can speak louder than, than any dialogue they can be given. And, and it's all about your presence and, and how you do it. And that's one thing that, uh, I think speaks to, to your brilliance is because you hit, you have, like you said, been cast in similar roles, but yet you bring something different to each one. And if it was just a, a role is okay, well, this is, you know, just a drug dealer or whatever, then you could get anyone to play that role because anyone can can come in there and do that but you bring so much more to that role you enhance whichever whatever part it is they give you into something more and that speaks to your brilliance because obviously if you weren't if you were just an average guy that didn't put forth the extra effort that you do you wouldn't keep getting all the roles that you have and i mean anybody that takes a look at your imdb i mean you you'll scroll to your fingers get tired <laughs> i appreciate the compliment chip like i said earlier um some people have the corporation behind them. You know, yeah. the, the people don't understand the power of the corporation. They say, why, why don't you do this? How come you're not on this show? I don't make the decisions, man. I don't right. have that kind of power. I'm not friends with certain. A lot of the people that were in power in the 90s and even up into the early 2000s are gone now. The right. producers that had an affection for me. There's a whole new generation of producers and people that have power and make decisions for whatever reason. So, you know, unless, like I said, you're connected, like, I was talking about earlier, like in the prisons, the mm -hmm. gangs and the cliques and the circles in Hollywood. If you have a corporation or a power entity behind you, they can groom you and create a career for you and emancipate you. Mm -hmm. If you don't have that, you stay in the Charlie Manson cage with a perception that people have that are not so intelligent that think you're limited based on that situation. When in fact, Manson transcended the walls of that cage because his name lives in what people perceive as infamy. Mm -hmm. uh, and why do they remember that? What yep. did he do that was so profound that moved through the prison gates, through the, through the walls, into the minds of many and had people wondering, is he the devil or is he just a prophet or is he just crazy or is he what is he? The fact that people even ask, ask those questions indicate to me there's a lot more than what meets the eye. Mm -hmm. So he was his, his own person in that sense. And I feel some of us have to find a way to communicate in our own truth that frequency of the art form the best way we know how because we're not being given any help to do it, man. 
Right. So and you're on your own in that sense. The people who are afforded, you know, opportunities because they have a culturism behind them and they're moving an entire generation because of what they're selling. I don't know how much of it has to do with the acting sometimes. I think as much as it has to do with a political statement or a social statement, there are other things at play now in terms of casting that determine why certain people are in the positions they're in and others are not. Mm-hmm. And once you understand that, you don't even take it personal anymore. You yeah. just realize the game is rigged to some degree. Yeah. And But the thing is, the cool thing about that is it may be rigged, but it still doesn't. They can tell you what to say. They can even try to tell you what to think, but they can't change the way you think unless you let them. Right. So in that sense, you always have the freedom to communicate the humanity of any character, good or bad, whatever that means, mm-hmm. um, in a way that's realistic realistic man because when you communicate a reality you're talking about the sons of anarchy and these italian dudes on the sopranos and all i know i know you know listen people some people romanticize that lifestyle i don't because i know dudes that ride bikes mm-hmm. i know dudes that hung out in those shops and ate all the you know italian dudes and all that and i not saying anything bad about them if you romanticize that phenomenon then you might find those shows interesting i might find them interesting i never really watched them because i didn't need to watch them because I knew people that rode bikes. I, I, I was in situations with people who lived that lifestyle. So to me, watching a movie about it, there was nothing new for me to discover in there other than maybe, are they playing it realistically? Right. Are they playing it realistically? Are the writers and the creators of the show, are they leaning this way? Are they leaning, What are they doing, man? So for those of us who know how it really is, it's a harder sell, man. You know what I mean? But yeah. I understand why certain shows live in history books because people fantasize about being rebels. Like people always fantasize about Bonnie and Clyde and the bank robbers because people feel oppressed. Absolutely. And there's a part of them that wants to break out and become outlaw. Outlaws are like God because outlaws, they are outside the law. They do not care about the consequence. The true outlaw Mm -hmm. does not care about being killed. We'll die for the club. We'll die for the, uh, this thing of ours, you know, like the Italians, the way the Italians, when they were really, you know, what they used to believe in before they started stitching each other out. Yeah. So the point is, is that that commitment to the agreement and the checks and balances, I think people who have some type of code respect the men and women who live by that code. Because if you don't, Tony's going to come whack you, man. You know, that kind of thing. You're going to, or you're going to catch a, a shotgun on the back of your, someone's van's going to pull up, shotgun's going to come out, you're going to get blown off your bike. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of that way too. So I think people admire the outlaw, hero worship the outlaw, but always on some level are waiting for their ultimate demise. That's the paradox of it. Yeah. They're no. waiting to see them. You know, oh, this dude's getting, you know, he's getting into, you know, he's starting to go, he's starting to go to his head. He's getting to, you know, he thinks he's God and boom, somebody, another evil, a greater evil comes and eats, eats that evil. And it just keeps perpetuating itself. And to me, after a while, it gets kind of boring lessons and evil to me Yeah, because the world we live in is that in a sense. And it isn't, there's aspects of it that are beautiful and heavenly, the trees, the oceans, you know, places that aren't polluted. And there's aspects of humanity that continue to create conflict. And I think people definitely find their entertainment in that, especially the people who socially have felt 
oppressed their whole lives. They need a champion to go out into the world to rob a bank, to knock someone out in the ring, to win a game in sport. They need somebody that they feel is speaking their frustration and winning so they can live vicariously through this fantasy of being that person. Mm-hmm. And they're winning. They're no longer shackled by their mundane everyday lives. They get to live vicariously through these outlaws or these bank robbers, these gangsters, these these sports heroes, whatever they, they deem deity right. in the world of show. People will glorify it because they can project into it and feel that they are that too in their imagination, <clears throat> like every child does. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's beautiful. But it also can be really dangerous, man, if you can't discern the reality from the fiction, man. Right. There's a lot of people nowadays that have that problem. Yeah. Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, because and I've never been one to subscribe to the belief that movies can, you know, control people to do certain things. But at the end of the day, sometimes, man, people watch a movie or watch a TV show and it just kind of overtakes them and they project, you know, what they're seeing on screen, not realizing that when that scene is over, you know, it's cut and that person is an actual person. You know, you weren't Escobar, you're Robert Lasarda. And it, sometimes people can take it too far, but you don't never know what's going on inside that particular person. Um, there could be something that triggered it. That just happened to be, you know, it was already there. It was about to tip. And once they seen a certain scene on TV, you know, that sent them over the edge. It's unfortunate. I don't necessarily blame that particular film, but I think that's where mental health comes in that needs to be looked in a little bit more deep because it is a very big problem uh, in the country right now. Mental health and uh, overdosing. I think I was reading a stat today. They said 11 people an hour is what the average is for overdosing right now in this country. And that's ridiculous. Yeah, it's unfortunate. It's sad, man. Um, a lot of the brothers that come back from the war committed suicide because of what they've seen over there, too. So, mm-hmm. yeah, people forget about that, too. But you know what, though? I, I don't know. You were talking about movies earlier. You have a collection of 7,000 DVDs and all that and stuff. And I told you how much I respect you for your knowledge of film. Uh, I don't know how far back you go. Do you remember an actor named Burt Lancaster? That name sounds very, very familiar. Yeah, he, he's been... He did. A, there was a movie called From Here to Eternity. Yeah, From Here to Eternity. Yeah, 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 yeah. And do uh, you remember another actor named Kirk Douglas? Yes, yes. Okay. There was an interview years ago between the two of them. They were talking about uh, the social conscience mm-hmm. or the responsibility of the artists in movies in relationship to the people and what it communicates and the influence of media and movies on the collective oversoul and the psyche. And uh, Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas didn't really agree on this point because Kirk Douglas felt, look, we're just entertainers, man. It's not our business to be concerned about the impact or the influence of what we do on the people. And Burt Lancaster said, no, 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 no. We do have a responsibility as artists to consider what we're doing and the impact it makes and how it influences people and what they believe and what they see, because it's such a powerful medium. Yeah. So I, th- I never forgot that conversation they had. That's a little bit of a debate they had between one guy saying, no, nah, it's none of my business. And the other guy says, has, it is your business. And so that, and this was years ago, man, I think it was black and white footage or that's how old it was. Wow. And so this has been going on for a while. This dialogue about, you know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg, you know, there's art imitate life, there's light imitate art. Mm-hmm. And my, you know, my thinking is, is that I can't answer that anymore than anybody else can from the, uh, unless it's from a subjective position, then I, you know, I declare myself deity. I'm not a deity. I don't know the answer, but I do feel though that, um, that 
it is important for us to mind our children, the innocent ones, in terms of what they observe because of the power of it and the nature of it. And so these, I think, yeah, I think it's very important that system of standards, what they call standards and practices, yeah. that parents that raise the children have to keep an eye on the children because if the children are witnessing homicides, 10 homicides a day in these fictional shows, then after a while their programming becomes all kind of screwed up. We're not raising them right. Why does a child raise up and kill his parents? You know, we ain't raising them right. So I think the influence of television shows that are graphic and violent, if young people are exposed to that, they become desensitized to the cause and effect of that and then wonder why the, the, suddenly the, the ruination of their lives are before them. And, and, and I think in that sense, we have to be careful what we communicate Mm-hmm. And, that. and when I went, to, I remember, and I'll, I'll put a period on this, but I remember I went to Angola State Penitentiary. I was filming a movie down there, and I walked down death row, and the ward took me to meet some of the inmates. And I never remember how ashamed I felt. And, like, there was a spotlight on me. And they were happy to see me and uh, respected me, and I felt like a fraud. I felt horrible because I saw these men, some of them very talented, handing me canvases of art that they had been doing, you know, because they're there for forever yeah and they honed in on this creative ability and i thought to myself i'm portraying men like this in certain shows and they respect me because i'm representing something the pain the, the struggle because of how i grew up because i grew up in ghetto and i grew up in you know situations social situations where easily i could have went the wrong way and ended up you know like that too so they i think they respect that maybe i was able to overcome the odds, you know, beat the odds, so to speak. But yet I felt not good seeing them behind bars. It, it made me sad. I felt not good about it. I was not proud. Yeah, here I am. And, you know, I felt ashamed. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah, that's that's got to be a, a surreal feeling to, to meet these guys and know that, you know, they're not getting out of there. And sooner or later, you know, could possibly, you know, be put to death. And that, 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 that has got to be a, a, a feeling that would grab you and, and twist you up a little bit mentally, knowing that you play a, a lot of these well, guys. But at the same well, time, it's cool that they respected you, though. Yeah, yeah. And I, I can appreciate I walked down Broadway and everybody was cool with me, man. I was walking around a prison. But the point is, is that uh, we people tend to glamorize this thing. Mm-hmm. They make songs about it, rap songs and all this stuff. And anybody, you know, back in the day, when I grew up in the pro, you know, I was living in the project in the seventies and music back then, Grandmaster Flash, the Furious Five, all these people, Rob Bass, they were making music to bring black people out of the darkness into the light. The music was designed like a form of poetry. They were prophets to communicate a frequency to liberate people, all people, not just black people, and take them out of the darkness and tell them what, and say, listen, man, you're going to end up like this if you do this. Mm-hmm. And then later on down the road, they're making music that's taking the people and putting them back in the darkness. Yeah. That's why I feel like there's a social, a certain social responsibility that has to be observed. People can tell me, hey, go F yourself. I don't care, man. Your kids are going to bear that sin, man. Mm-hmm. Your kids are going to bear whatever the fa- whatever thing, whatever you think is it's all good in the hood and all this nonsense and all this uh, this posturing of, of, of whatever, of some subhuman animal, you know, primal thing that you feel is making a statement. It's all it's going to do is contaminate the psyche of your kids and Make them crazy, man. And then you can't control them. Well, I would say control them. You can't communicate to them with reason. 
because you've communicated to them doctrines of things that are not reasonable at all. Right. You've gone, you've gone crazy and your children are taking a lead from you. And that's, you gotta be careful with that, man. You know, if the adults can't be the example in terms of morality and how to live, then where are they going to get their example from the television, from movies, man? Yeah. yeah. There's some movies out there that have a message that communicates hope and mercy and all that. And there's a lot of them that don't. And yeah. I don't understand how some of these filmmakers, and I work with some of them, how they sleep at night. And they got kids making these movies that are all about, like, the degradation of humanity, the tearing down, literally, of the fabric of humanity, like Nero. Back in the days of the Roman Empire, Nero, mm-hmm. he opened up the games after Marcus Aurelius died. He reopened up, and he would have floats of women, Mediterranean women on floats, beautiful women, waving at the crowds, right? And all the men are looking, everybody's looking at the beauty. And then he let loose the lions into the arena and the lions would attack the women and rip them apart. Everybody would just go crazy because of the bloodlust. And Nero was the, uh, the instigator. He was the, uh, the, he propagated this. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm just saying, you know, take a lesson from the Romans, man. This is how, you know, things can go get to that extreme. You got to be careful when things like that start happening. Yeah, abs- absolutely. What, now, what did Shakespeare say? The fault lies not in our stars, but in ourselves. So you can say, why God? Why? I say, yo, man, no, dig yourself. What did House of Pain say in that one song? You know, uh, it, it's time go clean up your own backyard. Yeah, you start knocking, knocking on your neighbor's and, door. Yeah. yeah, man. So I kind of feel like, you know, as a performer at this stage in my career, it's not my career. God gave me something to do. I'm doing it. Um, there are times I have to do work. Because I need to make a living like everybody else. And I'm not always proud of the results. I don't have control over it. That's why I decided to make my own movie. And whether people like it or not is inconsequential to me. I just needed to do it and be honest yeah. about what I was communicating and be clear on that. So I could at least feel that when I leave, when this leaves the planet, that whatever I have to meet in terms of the physics of my karma, I at least know that I try to be honest as an artist and communicate something and entertain the people too. Cause you know, you got Burt Lancaster and, and Kirk Douglas, they were arguing about, well, how do you entertain the people while you're preaching to them? You can't preach to them. Then you're a fundamentalist right. and you can't go crazy with the pornography of film at the, either. You got to find a balance between the two poles, man. You know what? Well, one And that kind of brings me to, to the next one I wanted to hit. Did you, was that your short film Riviera? No, Nope. That was not yours, but you were in it, obviously, because I watched it today. Yeah. For a 16-minute short film, black and white, that thing was really powerful. I mean, in in my opinion. I Um, agree. No, I agree with you. I I watched it, too, and I was blown away by it. Jabo Scott, you know, he did an incredible job, and everybody involved in that project uh, was on point. They knew what they were doing. The director, everyone. I can see why I won all those awards. Um, yeah, I'm going to put a link to wish, that. I, would, I just wish they would have made it into a full-length feature. No, I do too. I, I think that had the, the grounds and the, the ingredients to be a full-length feature for sure. And I'm going to put that yeah. in the link to the show notes for this episode because it was really powerful. And I don't want to give too much away because I encourage people to go watch it. But to be up under the stress of that situation and to know what you wanted to be done to you, but at the same time, why? And like you understood it. I understood why you were requesting that to be done to you. And it was it was very powerful and it was very moving. And I encourage every one of our listeners 
to to go take your 15 minutes and and watch that uh it's it's i can't recommend it enough but outside of the movies in your illustrious career and and film you've actually got a few books too and you wrote one was a life sentence yes sir we're going to put a link to that up too. And, and I apologize for not being able to read it before this interview, but I I am going to order it and get to it because it, it speaks to kind of your career and what we've went over here, you know, life sentence and in, in this movie industry. I mean, you want to tell our audience just a little bit about that before we close out? Yeah, sure. It's a, it's a myriad of stories, basically uh, experiences. I had my personal life in the movie industry and also just Dark Night of the Soul. It's a confession, basically, and an apology. Mm-hmm. And the realization that a lot of the stuff I believed in, I thought the studio was the godhead. I thought, you know, um, you know, I believed in the Wizard of Oz. I believed in all that stuff. And then I come to realize that I had been sold a bill of goods. And so it's almost like a, I don't know, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, a tribute to anyone who wants to know, at least from my point of view, what it's really like. You know, there are people who write books, you know, to glorify certain things or gossip aspects of things and all that. I didn't do that. I just wanted to communicate a, a truth, s- several of them, so that people would understand um, the journey and what it had been like for real. Yeah. Not what they imagined it to be, not what they're projecting on it to be. And then, uh, I had to take a good look at myself. So one day I looked in the mirror and go, okay, let me write this down, you know? Uh, Cause sometimes you look in the mirror, you like what you see. Sometimes you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see. And it's the same thing with American trash. I realized I have to, my friends say, okay, you you wrote the book. You got to make a movie now, man. You know, you got you know, to keep looking in this mirror. What do you want to say to the people? What do you want to communicate to them? What's the struggle? You know? So the life sentence is, it's a play on words, you know? Mm-hmm. Life sentence, you go to jail for life, right? Or it's a life sentence. So all these words that some of, I think, you know, aspects of my life's journey, personally, the genesis of my life, people that have influenced me, affected me, how I've influenced myself, how I've influenced others, how I've hurt people, and having to come to terms and forgive myself for all that. So it's a story, basically it's a book about reclamation, reclaiming one's true self, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. And letting go of all the fairy dust or dry, you know, wiping off all the fairy dust that has contaminated the soul so that one can see clearly again that there's life outside of show business. Wow. So it's not celebrating show business, the antithesis of that. Yeah. It's the deconstructing of the illusion that there's some magical place to go to. So for people who want to hear, read a book about the glory of it's not a book about yeah. glory. It's the opposite. It's glory is fleeting, man. Yeah. And that's any combat bed, he'll tell you that. Yeah. She'll tell you that. Glory is fleeting. For sure. And that's one reason why I'm going to pick that up and, and read it. And like I said, I'm going to attach a link to that for any of our audience members that want to go check that out in the show notes of this show. Robert, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on the show. This has been a fantastic interview. Um, the one thing that I, I respect so much about you is I, I seen this quote not too long ago, and I've shared it on my social medias. And it's like, I forget the the exact wording of it, but in short, it basically says, you know, somebody that is given opportunity will never look at things the same way as someone that had to go earn the opportunity. Somebody that got it out of the mud. And 
you know, I think that that's you, man. I mean, you, you got it out of the mud. Like you said earlier, you could have very easily took a different path that could have wound you up in a cell next to one of those guys that you were in prison visiting with, you know, and that, and that's to everybody. I mean, I'm, you know, one bad choice, one wrong move here, one wrong move there. Everybody is one bad decision away from, from doing time in prison. You know, you, you have a drink here at a restaurant, run a red light, you hit somebody, guess what? You know, you're probably going to go to jail and you, you was able to get around all that. You know, you mentioned your acting coach a few times. He, you know, was like, you said, a surrogate father, he kind of set you on the path and, you know, you combated all these things and you went against the grain with it. You, you, like you said, you come in with the tattoos, you were everything that probably people were saying you didn't need to be. And yet you still got it done and a hats off to you, my friend, for an, an illustrious you. career. And you're not done yet. I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm writing you off because you got a lot more. You're pumping out more now than, than ever. I mean, in the independent film side of things, you've done a film with my pal Ciro DiPaggio down there, the Mob King. I mean, you got it coming out left and right. Hi, Ciro. Hi, Ciro. What's <laughs> up, bro? Shout out to Ciro. Yes, sir, for sure. Um, when can people expect your movie to drop that we've been discussing? I'm in post-production uh, sooner than later. Sooner than 2023. later. 2023. All right. Any projects that should be coming out soon that you've been involved in you want people to look out for? Yeah. Uh, Brandon Slagle, a good friend of mine uh, who uh, worked in, in, in collusion or conjunction with the Mahal Empire. Arena Wars is coming out uh, next year. And then another film, a good friend of mine, Josh Weber, directed a film called Isaac. Okay. I'm really looking forward to it. I've seen the rough cut of this movie. It's brilliant. Uh, starring R.J. Mitty, Dove Cameron, myself, um, and uh, Gigi Gustin, who also is uh, in my movie, American Trash. She plays one of the leads in American Trash. She's in this film as well. So Isaac and Arena Wars next year. Isaac and Arena Wars next year. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that would do it for this episode of Crime and Entertainment. Robert, I can't thank you enough for stopping by the show. Okay. Can I just say one thing before we part company, sir? Absolutely. I yes. Just, go right ahead. I just want to give a salute to all the veterans, United States veterans in the country for serving. I'm a former veteran, and I just want to salute you all for the sacrifices you've made. I know you're suffering. Just hang in there. Okay? Hang in there, brothers and sisters. Okay? I respect you. Absolutely. And again, thank you for your service. Thank everyone out there for their service, as Robert said. And, you know, again, I know I'm going to say it one more time before we get out of here, man. I appreciate you giving me your time today. I usually don't like to keep people this long, but it was a very good conversation. And you've got such knowledge that I wanted people to hear and, you know, go a little bit past the character they see on TV. Go a little bit past Escobar Gomez and, and some of these characters and get to know Robert. And I think we've done that here. And again, I, I appreciate you stopping by. Thank you, Chip. You have a wonderful holiday, brother. Be safe. God bless you, man. Same to you. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I am Hollywood Wave. That was Robert Lasarda, And unfortunately, we are out of time. Tune in next week for an all-new episode of Crime and Entertainment. Robert, we appreciate it, my friend. Take care. Peace. Well, boy, oh, boy, what an episode that was. What a way to kick off 2023 with an actor with the accomplishments of that man right there. Fabulous, fabulous interview, folks. Go out and check out his book. Very interesting. I wasn't able to get it by the time we lined up this interview, but it is on the way. Uh, hopefully, maybe we can have him back on there because we only scratched the surface of some of the films that he did. Tons of more time, but I, mean, I didn't want to keep the man all day. If we'd have talked about all those films, this damn interview would have took a week. But 
you know, I was just grateful that he came on. He gave me his time, and I was super, super psyched to have him on the show. I hope everybody enjoyed it. I hope everybody's enjoying the show. I hope everybody was able to binge listen to last few of these uh, episodes that we've dropped here to catch up from our YouTube side of things. For 2023, what I want everybody to do, if you're having a good time listening to the show, you know, for close to two years now, we haven't asked you guys for a dollar. All we're asking for is you to share the show. Get the word out for the show. Put it on your social media. It doesn't cost you a thing. Put it on your social media. Share it. I put clips out every week. Make sure you're following Crime and Entertainment on YouTube, Crime and Entertainment on Facebook, Crime the Letter N and Entertainment on Instagrams, also on the TikToks. Follow us, share us. That really helps get the word out. The bigger we can get, the bigger guests we can get on, and just have more great quality content like we had today. I mean, I was just over the moon excited that we were going to be able to kick off 2023 with a guest as fabulous as this. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview as much as I did. And with that, we will close out. We hope everyone had a merry fucking Christmas and a happy new year. We are just getting started here at Crime and Entertainment.